better. And so I started doing what we all do when we wanna learn something, go to YouTube. And um, I, I began to watch videos on how to have a better lawn and all of that. And it, I, I led myself or, or something led me to this individual um, who um, I should have known upon just the, the title that I was in um, a bad place, but he calls himself the lawn care nut. And uh, so I, I became a um, disciple of this man, um, read everything, watched everything. I mean, a decade back, I'm watching, I, I know what every house he's ever lived in looks like because I've followed it. You know, I've followed him, his yards and, and all the rest. And um, th this began to be a bit of an obsession for me. Um, early morning, late night, fertilizing, checking soil temps, all the rest. Um, and I, I, really, I got to the place, the, when I knew I had a problem, I had pulled a, a, a something from his website, you know, into my shopping cart, about to click purchase, and it was a, um, a set of signs that you put up and down um, the perimeter of your yard, and they face towards your, your neighbor's house, and, and all of these signs say, you've been dominated. Um, and and this, this, is, this is really the point, is to dominate your neighbor. Um, he even has an instructional video on how you can stripe your lawn so that it points towards your neighbor's door, so when he opens the door to leave in the morning, he's like, oh, it's just like stripes pointing at his house, dominated. <laughs> Um, so even my, 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 my effort was just to make the yard a little better, just to fix some of the holes. And next thing I know, I'm trying to dominate the neighbors, right? Um, all toil, all effort stem from man's envy of his neighbor. Gosh, I wish that wasn't true in ministry, but it sure is, right? I want to do a good job. Why? So why? And there's some sick reasons for why. Now, is it possible to have toil and effort that aren't driven by envy? Sure it is, but it's not possible to do that without real intentionality because this is the way of the world. But this envy and consumerism has got its own kind of oppression. Um, Solomon goes on in verses 7 to 8 to say, And I saw, look, with this vanity under the sun, I saw one person who has no other, either son or brother, so it doesn't have to be biological. It can just, he doesn't have people who, who he's meaningfully connected to. He has no one. Yet there is no end to his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. That he, he never asked, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vapor. It's an unhappy business. The selfishness, it leads to an exhaustingly meaningless and lonely life. Far from being happy because you ignored the plight of the poor and the oppressed and gave yourself to envy and consumerism, you find yourself increasingly vulnerably, vulnerable and lonely. You work to find that there is no end to your toil. No matter what you get, your eyes are never satisfied. And this, he observes you, you never even stop to ask, what is all of this for? You find yourself enslaved to an unhappy business. No brother, no friends, no one to share life with. And Solomon goes on to say, two are better than one. And he lists all these great reasons why. And you think, uh, then I'd have to share. No thanks. I'm just going to continue by myself. Alone and giving yourself to endless work, to get endless stuff that will never love you back. Never come close to satisfying you. It's a terrible existence that... Way too many of us and those around us are familiar with. Whole cities seem to be built around it. Solomon, 
the way he describes this, you know when you hear someone talking about something and you go, I, I don't think you read about this. I think this is you. You hear him speak about it in such a way you think, sounds like, sounds like you're saying this from your own life experience. An exile, surrounded by suffering, many buy into an envy-fueled life of loneliness and consumerism, thereby wasting their lives. So what should we, ourselves, and what should we encourage others to do instead? Let's kind of walk through this. Um, I think, firstly, we just should acknowledge that this is the way of the world. That might seem minor to you, but I think it's anything but. Solomon, from a place of immense privilege and power, for him, a person like him, to see the plight of the oppressed is a major thing. Because he's the kind of guy in the kind of situation where he could have ensured that he never encountered such a thing. For Solomon to see the tears of the oppressed, he would have had to go out of his way to do it. He would have had to, there was effort for him. You, you imagine him surrounded by world-class entertainment and, and, and Scrooge McDuck stacks of gold and, and, and all kinds of animals and all kinds of crazy, just people bowing down around him and sneaking out in the middle of the night, cloaked to go and, and see what was life like outside of this kingdom. It would, have, it would have taken immense effort for Solomon to see the tears of the oppressed and the suffering. For some of us, we, we need to go out of our way to see it. They'll get there eventually. They're just digging through a purse or something trying to figure out what, where that's coming from. For some of us, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take effort for us. And the longer that you're in church ministry, the more effort it will take for you because you can get more and more surrounded and encapsulated by people that, that love you, that, that care about you, that you, you can kind of you can kind of work your way into a corner where it's gonna take effort for you to get out of that, to go and see what life's really like. I remember um, t- talking to a, uh, a church leader one time, actually it was in this country, and uh, I was talking about how I'd visited um, a part of their town and I was just shocked by a lot of the suffering and the pain and the oppression and, and what, what this person said to me was, well, we've never been to that part of town. Why would we ever go there? Well, you'd go there to see what it was like, to see what people were facing. I had a friend tell me recently um, that he grew up surrounded by so much wealth and so much privilege that it took decades before he ever encountered uh, something that made him realize what it was like for some people. This guy said he was in his 30s when it finally hit him that some people had to use sex to pay for rent. It just, it never dawned on him like what it was like for some people to live. So acknowledge that it's the way of of the world. The next thing that I think we do is we we make sure we're not part of causing the oppression. The world that we live in is an easy place. It's an easy place for for, for people to, to, to take advantage of others. It's easy to do that. It's so easy to do it that if you're not trying not to do it, you will do it. The world's built for it. One of the ways God has always wanted his people to stand out is by being people who, who did not take advantage of others. 
You kind of read through the scriptures. God always wanted his people to be the kind of people that, that refused to take advantage of others. It's a great challenge to all of us who are in leadership. The way of the world has always been and will always be using authority and leadership to lord over others. Matthew 20, 25 through 28, Jesus says to his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, but it shall not be so with you. And it wasn't just the literal Gentiles, it's, all, it's, it's, it's the world that we live in. And that means that even in the church, you and I will not accidentally not lead like the Gentiles. If we're, not, if we're not cognitively thinking about it, evaluating the ways in which we lead, the, the ways in which we bring people through, if we're not thinking about this all the time with, with intentionality, we will drift into what is natural, what is all around us, which is you lead like the Gentiles. You lead by lording. Jesus doesn't want us and our leadership to look and feel like that. And as we as leaders in the church can, can begin to do that more and more with, with integrity, as, as with integrity more and more, we can be the kinds of leaders who don't lord. It gives us credibility then to, to say to those people in our church and in our spheres of influence, hey, if you have authority, if you have opportunity, you're an older sibling, you're a parent, you're a manager at, at a Starbucks or whatever it is, any authority that you have, you're a teacher, you're a politician, you're a business owner, whatever authority you've been given, you've been entrusted with an opportunity, you've been given responsibility. When Christians have influence, we have this challenge of leading like Jesus did. And it's a great, it's a great opportunity to, to encourage people in our church who don't work for the church on how they can live as light in the darkness just by creating a work environment whereby people are treated fairly. Another thing we must encourage exiles to do is to put their hope in God who will one day make things right. We live in a hard world, but Jesus is coming back. We hope in him who sees all the oppression and has a plan to do something about it. I love in Micah 7, 2 through 3, we kind of get a, a picture of what we heard about in Ecclesiastes. The, the godly is perished from the earth and there's no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood and each, each hunts the other with a net. There are better ways to hunt people, by the way, but somehow these guys just used a net. Um, <laughs> their hands are on what is evil to do it well. They didn't want to do it, they want to be good at it. And then he says, the prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The people in authority don't step in and say, hey, this is wrong. They say, well, we'll look the other way for a price. The great man utters the evil desire in his soul, thus they weave it together. So Micah describes what this world feels like. But then he turns in verse 7 and says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Jesus will one day come back. He'll take vengeance. Vengeance will be his. And then once that's done, what we read about is this incredible, beautiful thing where he says that he'll, he'll, bring, us, he'll bring us home to a safe place. He'll wipe every tear. And then he says again and again and again, he says, and I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be with them and they will be with me. And I think we can read that so many times that we can, it can be lost on us what's being said here. 
when someone's been abused, when someone's been hurt, we, we, um, we're involved in helping people get out of human trafficking. And I've sat with some of these girls and it's been months now since they were in that and their names have been changed and they've been given new identities and been given you know, vehicles and you know, all the rest of you know, jobs. We, we've separated them from for a long time. Gosh, somebody's really giving it a go over there, aren't they? <laughs> Sam's, Sam's gonna sort out, go Sam, go. All right. <laughs> I, 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 was, I was feeling the suffering and the cruelty of life even if I was trying to preach this. <laughs> There's no coffee in the lobby. Someone's shouting in the other room. <laughs> Exile. Um, so we, uh, we work with these people getting out of uh, human trafficking and, uh, you know, the one thing that they're all scared of, they, they just kind of constantly live looking over their shoulder. Like, when are they going to be back to get me? They never feel safe. People have been molested and raped. They live with this sense of just looking over their shoulder. And I think one of the beautiful things that God is communicating to us as his people when he's, he presents this, I'm going to wipe all your tears. Okay, that's good. It's good, but when are they coming back? You know, we kind of, we live with this. Well, it's a matter of time before something bad happens again. We live with this. And God says, no, no, no. I, I'm not going anywhere. I will be with you. You will be with me. And guarantees that no one will ever hurt us again. It's a beautiful thing. Scripture refers to this as our blessed hope. I love that. Titus, our blessed hope. We we wait for this blessed hope. And some of us as Christians are good at that. We're, we're good at waiting for a blessed hope, as we should be, but it's not all that we're meant to do. Sort of standing around going, any day now, any old day now, we're meant to long for this blessed hope. And then Titus goes on to say, but in the meantime, we're to be a kind, the kind of people who are zealous for good works. What, what, is, what does that look like and feel like in this passage that we see in Ecclesiastes? I think as we look to close here, what we see is a call to be eager, to be a source of comfort for the oppressed. This is a part that just kept jumping out at me as I read Ecclesiastes 4. And there was no one to comfort them. Did you pick that up when we read it the first time? Look how sad it is. Look how hard it is. And there's no one to comfort them. And people in power are helping the oppressors and there's no one to comfort them. It's like there's evil and then there's an evil on top of the evil where the, 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 the people in power help. But then there's an evil above all of that, which is that it's not just bad enough that people are suffering oppression. They have no one to comfort them. Enter our massive opportunity. You and I, we can't fix everything, but we can comfort the oppressed. You and I are literally surrounded. I know that millennials say that about everything. We are actually right now currently literally surrounded by people who are suffering. I read a quote a few years back, be kind, everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Everyone in this room is fighting a great battle. Walk out the door, everywhere you go, the airport, the hotel, the restaurant, your neighborhood, everywhere. The grocery store, everywhere. Suffering all around us. What's missing? People to comfort them. 
We can't do everything. Travis spoke on that yesterday. You got to come to terms with that. We can't help everybody. One day God will make everything right. So we can't help everybody. One day God will make things right. Well, what do we do? Well, right here in the middle, we set our gaze towards weeping with those who weep. Being moved with compassion to comfort those who are oppressed. One day he's going to wipe every tear from every eye. And today, we're going to try to wipe as many tears as we can. Jesus said, pray like this, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And in heaven, there's no tears. Thank God for that. But in the meantime, there's a lot of tears right here. And so we don't just pray, God, we want your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. We live in such a way where we display the kingdom. We display what heaven looks like. It's a place where tears get wiped away. It's a place where people who are suffering get comforted. And we, we, we get to be those kinds of people. A couple of things that I wanted to just share with you. One of them came this morning as we were praying together, just this as we close, um, I was reminded, thinking about you guys, of uh, Ezekiel 37. You guys remember this, the Valley of Dry Bones? And, um, you know, death is everywhere. And it's not recent death. It's old death. These are dry bones. Could have been hundreds of years that these bones have been laying there. The picture that we saw, uh, Matthew um, referenced yesterday, you know, how Samson finds himself surrounded by dead bodies that he's just killed. I, I would have personally had more faith in that moment because you could see a lot of evidence that there, there could be life here. But, but in, in Ezekiel 37, we see a situation that looks beyond hope. I mean, these are dry bones now. And um, God says, can they live? And I love... Um, I think we get a, a glimpse at real reformed charismatic here. The response is, honestly, only you know. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's the right answer. I thought about that thinking about you guys. Maybe that's how you feel. Think about the suffering around you. Think about tens of thousands of refugees finding your little British town maybe infused with so on and so on. You think about the kind of strife that your countries are all dealing with. You think, can these bones live? I don't know. I don't know. Honestly, only you know. Maybe you think this feels, this suffering that, I, that we're dealing with feels ancient. This feels like dry bones. And, and I wanted just to draw your attention to that passage and encourage you to do what he did. He was obedient. Even, even in the face of what felt like just sheer impossibility, he was obedient. I encourage you to, to, to lean in and believe that God can do what seems impossible. How can the suffering ever change? Just, just trust him. Lord, only you know. Jesus, you might be able to do this. You might do this. 
man, I'm going to prophesy to these bones that they would live. And, and the second thing I wanted just to say to you in closing is that as we seek to comfort those who are oppressed around us, you will find yourself quickly running low on comfort. It will bleed into all kinds of areas of your life. You might even find yourself being comforting to people in your community and at the same time sharp and harsh to those in your family or those closest to you. We don't have an endless supply of comfort in and of ourselves. The, 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 the mandate is not, and go be nice until Jesus comes back. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, I think we see the way forward. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Endless comfort. He comforts us. We love that. We love how we get to pray for each other and God comfort us. I even take a moment to do that here in just a minute. I might say, gosh, I'm suffering. Pray for me. God comfort me. He comforts us in all our affliction. But there's a comma here, not a period. I think sometimes as Christians, we read that with a period. And hallelujah, come comfort. He does comfort us, comma, so that. Man, as we get comforted in this room today, we're comforted by the Father so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Not because we're nice people, but because we have been comforted by the God of all comfort. So I would beg you not just to give comfort to those suffering around you, but to keep going to the God of all comfort to supply more comfort for you. I don't envy where God has put you You are in a tough place to be in exile, but God wants you here. And I pray that God would bless you and continue to fill you and I with the comfort that spills out to hurting people all around us. Amen.